people are never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun, President and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathen. You know, one of the interesting things that uh, I read about and listened to and, and dug into this week was all the headlines out there about Pope Francis being in South America slamming capitalism. And the headlines would read, and I'm paraphrasing, I didn't gather them all, but the headlines would say, um, Pope says that global warming is due to capitalism, that world poverty is due to capitalism, that poor people are sacrificed on the altar of money, and that capitalism is, what's the other one, uh, capitalism is the, the dung of the devil, and, uh, I, you know, I'm one of these guys that, that uh, believes in free market capitalism, lives his life in free market capitalism, thinks that that is the only uh, true path to liberty and freedom and growth in this country. Um, and when I start reading headlines like this, it just kind of... Kind of makes my blood pressure rise a little bit. So I asked my producer, I said, look, pull his speeches and uh, let's see if the headlines are representative of what he actually said. And the fact is the Pope not once in all of his talks said the word capitalism. Now, he did talk about uh, money and corporate greed and individual greed, talked a lot about the poor and how their uh, labor and and lodging needs to uh, be upgraded. And, and, and you know, I, I think the Pope um, probably has his heart in the right place. But I think that part of his vision is skewed from where he grew up. I mean, he comes from Argentina, the first Pope from uh, that area. And he has a, a, shall we say, a distorted view of what the market is all about. And you remember a couple of weeks ago, he came out with uh, his statement on uh, the environment and how we need to focus on that. And once again, the headlines read that capitalism uh, is is the fault of the mark, uh, the environment issues and climate change and all. Well, he didn't really say any of that. And he also qualified it in that encyclical that, you know what, the church is really not qualified to to dictate policy or, or regulatory matters in these areas. So you got to be careful reading the headlines from what people interpret the Pope is saying. 
because both sides jumped all over it. The progressive, the 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 liberal left side uh, jumped all over it. How can you disagree with the pope? Even a pope knows that capitalism is bad. And, of course, then the, the conservatives and the right side jumped all over it that, geez, here's the pope saying capitalism is, is bad, it's hurting the poor, it's hurting the environment, another, another socialistic-type movement. So do your own research. Look it up. But it was interesting because over the last 40, 45 years, capitalism has dropped the poverty rate in the world by over 80%. And the research I saw was from the American uh, Enterprise Institute, and it based it on the number of people in the world that live on a dollar or less a day. And we went from, the world went from uh, 26.8% down to 5.4%. And the Asian, the East Asian, Japan, Hong Kong, uh, all of East Asia uh, went from 58.8% of the population down to 1.7% that lives in that poverty. Now, the reason for this is free market capitalism. Capitalism has brought more people out of poverty than any, any government policy ever. Cumulative. Period. Now, if you look at the wealth divide, and we see this all the time, the rich are getting richer, the poor are getting poorer, the divide between the rich and poor is greater and greater. Well, yes, in a sense, that is true. But let's use an example of me. Let's say I, I have an extra million dollars, and I stick that in the bank in my savings account at 0% or 1%, whatever interest rates are nowadays. I know it's nothing. Now, would you say that I'm being selfish with my money? I got a million dollars. I just stuck it in the bank. I'm not sharing it with anybody. I'm not spending it, not giving it to charity. Is that selfish? Well, let's think about that. What does a bank do with my million dollars? Do they stick it in a pile and put my name on it so I can come by and look at it from time to time? Uh, I can finger it. I can uh, grab a handful and, and go shopping with it if I want. No. Not only does the bank reinvest my million dollars into the community and the economy, they invest it on a multiple. Remember, in this country, we have fractional banking. And I've I've been on both sides of the debate on fractional banking, and, and I have my own opinion. But the fact is, that's the reality of the situation. So my million dollars in the bank allows the bank to loan out... $10 $10 million. If I withdraw that million dollars and stick it in my mattress, bury it in a backyard in a coffee can, then there's $10 million that doesn't go into the economy. So it's very important for people who have extra money 
to save it, to put it in those accounts, to reinvest it in things. How many jobs are created by $10 million worth of loans? How much profit is created from those companies with $10 million in loans that get saved and multiplied again and again and again? This is what so many politicians in the past have riled against. This is classic trickle-down economics. And President Obama in 2011 said that trickle-down doesn't work, never has worked, makes a great bumper sticker, but it doesn't work. He also said that if you own a business, you didn't build that. Hillary Clinton has said similar things. I'm paraphrasing. I am not quoting her. Paraphrasing, but she essentially said, don't let anybody tell you that businesses create jobs, implying that it's government that creates jobs. Well, jobs are created by capital. And capital being saved multiplies tremendously in our economy. Jobs are created from production. Consumption is created from production. Nothing can be consumed until it's produced. By saving money, I am not being selfish. I'm creating the machine that makes our economy go. Capitalism is very, very important, and it's constantly being attacked, even by capitalists, if you will. Free market capitalism is what is necessary. we got to let the market do what it does and reach equilibrium. And this includes interest rates. I mean, we talk about the Federal Reserve all the time and controlling interest rates. And Janet Yellen this week came out and said, well, we're going to raise interest rates sooner than later, which probably means September or so. She'll, she'll raise interest rates a quarter of a point. But we need to let the market determine the price of things, the cost of things, and interest rates. So yes, the wealthy are getting richer and the poor will continue to get poorer to a certain extent. They will get poorer, but at a richer level. For example, like I said before, the number of people who live on less than a dollar a day has gone down by 80% worldwide in the last 36 years, I believe down by 97% in East Asia due to capitalism. Coming up, another example that really burnt my cookies this week. I'll share that with you. It, it, it's truly, truly aggravating for me. And HUD is coming out with some goofy stuff also. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I came across something this week that just fries my cookies. Do you fry cookies? Burns my cookies. How's that? 
And, and it's an example of something I talked about a couple of weeks ago that I'm getting tired of the cynicism of the pessimism that prevails over uh, the Internet. I read an article this week called The Last Days of Normal Life in America, and I'm not even going to give you the guy's name that wrote it or his website because I'm not going to give him any credit uh, for perpetuating this. But he, he makes a statement. He's talking about our national debt and the fact that so much of our prosperity in this country is created by deficit spending which I disagree with, but that's for another another story. And he says we're about to enter the hardest times that any of us have ever known. And he, he talks about, uses the example of an individual that constantly makes foolish choices, and eventually it catches up with him. I mean, that's that's, you know... Legendary. It's, I mean, TV shows have been made around that. But then he goes on to say that we've been living a charmed life as a nation, uh, even though we've been making foolish decisions and borrowing tons of money and that kind of stuff. Now, I can make the case for that. I understand that. And we are not as great as we could be in this country yet. But he goes on to say, once upon a time, we were the most loved country on the entire planet. Now, we are one of the most hated. You know what? This is, if we're one of the most hated, Mike, leave. Go away. If we're one of the most hated, how come people are risking life and limb to get into this country? You never hear about immigration problems in the Middle East, immigration problems in Russia, there aren't boats of of refugees and and people floating into China. How come we're the country everybody's trying to get into if we're the most hated country? And it, to me, this is just dumbness. This this is just stupidity to write stuff like this and put it out there. He goes on to say that the media is controlled essentially by six gigantic media corporations. Now, I don't disagree with that. Okay, I understand that. But he says, have you noticed how the mainstream media loves to divide us? Americans are more divided than ever, it seems. How can we ever hope to come up with any solutions for our nation if we spend so much time hating our fellow citizens? But this is just how the elite like it. They love to play divide and conquer. If we were united, we would be far more difficult to manipulate. Okay, there's so many things wrong with those sentences I just read. I I don't have time today to go through them. But the fact is, we need to be individuals, an economy of one, if you will. We can't be a collective. We can't be united in everything around our lives. That's what's put us into this problem is the the collective mentality, the, the government thinking that we should all be the same. In order to be fair, we all have to be the same. Well, we don't. What's more difficult to manipulate? A group? A crowd? 
or a whole bunch of individuals? I'll give you a clue. It's a whole bunch of individuals. I'm an individual. I'm not going to go with the crowd. All of us individuals are not going to go with the crowd. We cannot be controlled. We make our own decisions. To think that the government is a solution to what's going on in our individual lives is completely counterintuitive. We need to get away from government. Government is not going to police itself. We're not going to convince Washington that they need to be less intrusive in our lives, that they need to control, don't need to control everything in our lives. Are we on a bad path right now? Yeah, I think so. And you've heard me use the phrase, we're the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry. And we are the cleanest dirty shirt in the laundry on a global scale. But you know what? We're also the best tailored shirt in the laundry. American ends with, I can. Saw that on a billboard the other day. Thought it was cool. We are Americans. We will get through this. We have poor leadership right now in Washington, in Congress, and the White House. I'm saying to you, we don't need them. Would it help to have good, strong leadership there? Absolutely. Absolutely. But regardless, we're going to continue growing. We will be the greatest nation in this world for a long, long time. I'm just sick of hearing and reading these kind of stupid stories. And it's these are the ones that get printed. And I appreciate your indulgence for me letting for letting me vent a little bit uh, about this. Because the only way we are going to be the cleanest shirt, as well as the best tailored, is to pull ourselves up and do it individually. Coming up next, I got Gordon Chang joining me. He's the author of The Coming Collapse of China and a contributor to Forbes. We're going to talk about what's happening in China. That's next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Gordon Chang. He's a lawyer and author who's lived in China and Hong Kong for almost two decades, recently uh, in Shanghai, working as counsel to the American law firm Paul Weiss. He is the author of The Coming Collapse of China. He's a contributor to Forbes.com. And you can find his blog over at worldaffairsjournal.org. Gordon, uh, welcome to An Economy of One. Thank you so much. I appreciate you joining me. You know, in the last several weeks, it seems like all the major headlines, every every, commentator has been talking about Greece, and really there's kind of a bigger uh, economic news story going on in China, isn't there? 
Well, there certainly is, um, because first of all, you've had the fall in the stock indices in China since the middle of June. Um, there was a slight recovery as the Chinese central government engineered a lot of state-sponsored buying um, and also prohibitions on selling. So essentially what happened is the Chinese government has basically ended the stock market. I mean, they're no longer functioning like stock markets in China. They've right. frozen that, and they can easily freeze the Chinese financial system. And so we have an issue of um, a Chinese economy in distress, financial system on the edge of a cliff. Wow. Now, you know, the stock market has had a, a big run-up the last oh, 12 months, certainly in the last six or seven months. And uh, um, a lot of that, I hear, is being driven by the ordinary average person investing in the market and using a lot of margin. Is that the case over there? Well, certainly. Um, the amount of margin debt is enormous. Also, there's been a lot of surreptitious uh, borrowing to put in the market. Essentially, this market um, rose from the middle of last year, not because of fundamentals, not because of a robust economy or corporate profits, but because the Chinese central government talked the market up. And they uh -huh. did that because other tactics to restart growth weren't working. So this was a desperate and indeed a reckless maneuver on the part of the Chinese government. Now, of course, what you had in the middle of June was an adjustment which was dictated by economic reality. And so at this point, we have a struggle between people wanting to sell and a Chinese central government that is essentially prohibiting them from many of them from doing so. And so there is this market versus government uh, drama that we're starting to see right now. Now, what, what's, I mean, uh, you're an expert in this area and an expert on the, the Chinese culture and, and government, that kind of stuff. What's, what's this likely to, to go to? Is it, is it going to mirror a 1929 United States kind of crash? Or uh, from what I understand, the controls and stuff, could it be a lot worse than that? Well, I think it could be worse because the American economy and political system survived the 1929 crash. It's not entirely clear to me that the Chinese political system led by the Communist Party will be able to get through this period. Now, they can postpone the onset of symptoms. They're very good at doing that in Beijing because you don't have a free market in China. And they do have a lot of levers they can exercise and influence the price of stocks and, indeed, other things as well. But ultimately, um, they've got a failure now because their economic model has run its course. Uh, there's too much investment. Monetary stimulus isn't working. Um, and they're not willing to reform. Uh, uh, they basically have been moving the country backwards, closing the economy up, um, basically um, going back to sometimes even 1950s economic policies, especially with the recombination of state enterprises into state monopolies. So this is not a good story. And we are seeing, I, I think, um, a struggling Chinese central government and political system that may very well fall with the economy. That's an interesting statement. I didn't didn't really think about that, but I mean, is that is that a precursor or a potential precursor to going to a free market economy, or is it a precursor to going to a a total state controlled uh, communistic country? Well, I don't know if Xi Jinping is going to be successful in taking China back to a Maoist economy, but certainly he's been trying to do that um, because on balance. 
of the moves have been regressive, because he does believe in a state-dominated society. And of course, that means a state-dominated economy. And, and we certainly see that with his attempt to favor state enterprises over foreign companies, with these discriminatory investigations against foreign business, and, and again, with more state stimulus to create growth, more state subsidies to state enterprises, and as I mentioned, um, these very anti-competitive maneuvers of recombining state enterprises. So all of this points to a 1950s foreign policy rather than a 21st century policy. And we've got to remember that the Communist Party's primary basis of legitimacy has been the continual delivery of prosperity. And if they can't deliver prosperity, then the only thing they can fall back on is nationalism. That's bad for neighbors of China as well as for the United States because China's trying to close off international sea and airspace. And that brings the U.S. into play because we guarantee the global commons. Yeah, I, I was going to ask you about that uh, before I let you go today. I mean, they're, they're having a Navy, uh, naval buildup uh in the uh south china sea i mean is this just exercises or is this part of a a longer plan a bigger plan to uh uh dominate the area over their neighbors well they certainly want to dominate the area over their neighbors because they've made it very clear that they believe that china should be bigger than it is today and so they're creating instability in an arc of nations from India in the south to South Korea in the north, and they want to close off international airspace and water. Um, so all of this brings China into conflict with the international community. And, you know, as long as China is able to fund its military, it's going to have this aggressive policy. Um, and it does mean that the United States has a direct interest in what's going on, because um, we have, you know, from the very beginning of our republic, uh, have defended the right of our ships to travel in international water and, of course, our planes to fly in international airspace. And Beijing is already trying to restrict that. So um, this is a zero-sum contest, uh, which really, this is going to be where the 21st century's history is going to be written. Who wins this struggle? China to close off um, the areas or the United States to keep them open. You know, in your opinion, once again, with all of your background and expertise on that, where do you think it's going to go? I mean, uh, is it likely that uh, we're likely to have a military conflict with China? I don't know if it's likely, but it's certainly possible um, because uh, China wants to do things which um, really are destructive of peace and stability. And we are the ultimate guarantor of peace and stability in East Asia. Um, I think that we can easily get ourselves into a conflict if we uh, signal weakness, if, if we show hesitancy. I think that if we show strength um, and resolution and willing to work with our neighbors and our uh, allies uh, and our friends, then I think that we can make the Pacific peaceful. But at this point, um, the South China Sea is the most contested patch of the surface of the globe, and it's China that is roiling the water. I'm joined by Gordon Chang, the author of The Coming Collapse of China, to get some insight on uh, economic unrest in the world's second largest economy. You know, Gordon, hardly a week goes by that some of my, my clients and listeners uh, call me and ask me about China becoming the the world's dominant economy, the the Chinese currency being the world's reserve currency. Uh, when I look at what's going on now and read a lot of your articles and, and uh, insights about the market and stuff, I, I'm not so sure China can, can play that role, can they? Uh, 
No, well, they certainly can't. Um, so, for instance, take a look at the issue of the renminbi becoming a reserve currency. In order to do that, first of all, you have to have an open capital account. You've got to have people being able to freely exchange your currency. You can't do that in China because the capital account is closed, um, and it's very unlikely that they'll be able to open it. But also, you have to have a uh, country that treats the international community fairly, where people um, believe in the administration of your currency is fair, and, and no one really believes that about China, especially when we've seen what they've been doing with their stock markets. Um, you know, Xi Jinping, the ruler of China, talks about having the markets play a decisive factor, but clearly what we saw the last week or so when China intervened in this market, that they do not want to have the market rule when that market does things that they don't like. So if you don't have this issue of fairness, people are just not going to want to have the renminbi be the world's reserve currency. And when you have an economy which is collapsing, which is effectively what's happening in China, it's collapsed in small, uh, slow motion, but it is collapsed nonetheless. Um, you know, it really means that they will not be able to realize their ambitions in this regard. You know, we're a major, major part of the Chinese uh, economy. They export a tremendous amount of stuff to us. Um, what does this turmoil, what does this chaos mean to our economy, our stock market, um, uh, our finances over here? A lot less than people think, because we can fund our federal deficits without the help of the Chinese. And in fact, the Chinese have been reducing their holdings of U.S. Treasuries basically since the middle of 2011, and we've been able to um, continue the operations of our federal government, despite what some people think. That's not to say that we should be running deficits, but it does say that if you want to run deficits, we can do so without the permission of the Chinese. Also, you know, China is not an engine of global growth, because, you know, people say that all the time, but to be an engine of global growth, you've got to buy the goods and services of other countries to create growth elsewhere. And China, through its predatory policies, actually takes growth from other nations. So, yes, China's failure will cause problems. It will cause shock. But uh, the world economy is resilient, and the U.S. economy right now is actually quite strong. We can uh, get through this. Um, the only thing that is, is psychological. Because people think that China is so important, of course their failure will have repercussions. But if we understood China and its place in the global economy, when the failure occurs, it shouldn't be a problem. Well, you know, I've always always been of the mind that capitalism will fill a vacuum. And if, if uh, China collapses and we have that vacuum over there, uh, somewhere in the world, capitalism or some free market capitalism will uh, fill that vacuum. I was reading in, in some of your uh, articles, and I, I was surprised uh, to read how much uh, debt – uh, China has in relation to its GDP. I mean, that's like 300 and some percent of GDP is is the Chinese debt, isn't it? Yes. Um, McKinsey um, put it at 280% in the middle of 2014. But if you properly state GDP, and if you actually count all of China's debt, we're probably somewhere in the 350% range. Now, you know, of course, there is no level of debt which automatically says you have a problem. But nonetheless, when you're over 300 percent, which China surely is when everything is properly counted, that is a warning sign, especially for an economy that is so fragile. Um, you know, Japan has maybe a GDP debt to GDP ratio of 400, but Japan has a stable economy so they can survive that. 
China cannot survive 350 percent, probably can't survive 300, and even 282 percent, as McKinsey says, is a real problem for Beijing. We've been talking with Gordon Chang, author of the book, The Coming Collapse of China. Gordon, I really appreciate your time today. It's been very insightful. It's good to have uh, you in the Rolodex as an expert in this area, and I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Coming up next, some interesting information on uh, the Affordable Care Act compliance that I came across this week, and little more evidence why you should not have a safety deposit box. I'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I had an interesting experience this week, and uh, I kind of read more into it probably than most people would, but that's kind of my nature. Uh, I have a very close friend of mine that drives truck for a living, and uh, in order to drive truck for a living, you have to have what's called a CDL, Commercial Driver's License. And in order to have a CDL, not only do you have to pass the test, but you have to have a physical uh, from time to time. I think it's every couple years or every year, depending on... Uh, what prescription drugs you're taking, that kind of stuff. Anyway, this friend of mine goes to get his physical certificate, medical certificate, in order to get his CDL renewed. And uh, the doctor looks at him, takes his blood pressure, that kind of stuff. He's on blood pressure medication. And he says, "Uh, I can't sign your medical certificate because your body mass index is higher than what the government standards say it should be. Now, think about this for a minute. You know, he was all upset, and uh, I'll tell you the, the, uh, the solution he came up with uh, uh, in a minute. But I looked at that, and, and my, my wife is shaking her head. She said, can you believe this? And I said, yes, I can. And I said, don't think it won't happen to other people. Think about what you need, what you have to have to get through the day that comes from the federal government. Driver's license. Passport, maybe. License plates for your car. Uh, Credit cards. Checking account. Loans. All this kind of stuff. Now, what if you go to get your driver's license renewed and the DMV says, oh, um, your body mass index isn't acceptable and we're not going to renew your driver's license until you get that weight down. We're not going to give you your license plates until you get that weight down. Now, is that absurd? Absolutely. Is it believable? You be the judge. I think it is believable. That's how one of the ways government will enforce these lifestyle changes on you. Every day we're seeing, you know, sugar, high fructose, corn syrup being eliminated and food coloring. And I mean, just it, it gets dumber every day, every day. Don't think they haven't laid it out on how to force compliance. Now, how did my friend get his medical certificate? Called a few of his trucking buddies. They had the same problem. They referred him to a medical professional that for a small fee, he will sign your medical certificate. 
the the first doctor said, well, you have to go through all these kind of tests. You have to go to your family doctor. You have to get that body mass index down, and then we'll sign your certificate, and then you can go make a living again. But it essentially put this man's livelihood in danger because some government bureaucrat feels that all truckers' body mass index has to be below a certain number. Now, I will tell you, this guy's body mass index doesn't surprise me it's over 31. But he can outwork anybody, and he's healthy as they come. It's just a government standard. Something else that came up this week, you know, uh, all we've seen uh, going on in Greece. And the last week, uh, the Greece uh, government decided they would have a, a bank holiday for five days or a week. And then they extended it for a week. Well, what's a bank holiday? Bank holiday means the banks are closed. So you cannot conduct business. You can't go there and get cash. Uh, their ATMs eventually ran out of money. Checks aren't processed. Loans aren't processed. Nothing. It's a bank holiday. And my first thought when I heard this was not that the banks were closed and people couldn't get cash or anything like that. But one of the things many listeners, many of you have asked me about, and that's keep keeping money, keeping valuables in a safety deposit box. Well, what if you had had a safety deposit box and your bank didn't open? You don't have access to that safety deposit box. When the bank does open, it's very likely they're going to follow you in the little room and see what you have in your box. Maybe inventory it. Maybe let the authorities know what you have in there. I have said for years and years and years, do not use a safety deposit box. Provide for your own safety. Have a safe. Use a private safety deposit box company. They are out there. The important thing is, if you're building up reserves and valuables for when the zombies come, when the zombies come, you'll be locked out of your reserves. So it's very important to understand two things. One, having that insurance, if you feel it's important. I'm not saying Go buy a bunch of gold and silver and stick it in the ground somewhere. But if that's what makes you feel comfortable, do that. And two, make sure you have access. Access is the key. You can have all the wealth in the world, but if you don't have access, doesn't matter a whole lot, does it? So I just, you know, in looking at what's going on in Greece, that was the thought uh, that came across. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. 